I love that song. And I also love Rumi. I love Rumi so much. I mean, I could listen to his poetry, I think, all day, every day. I mean, his words even at one point made me want to learn Farsi. I, I, I still haven't, but it, it's on my list now. Now, the first time that I heard this poem many moons ago, it, it didn't make any sense to me. When I first looked at it, I thought that the obvious mistake was that the dragon hunter didn't bring the dragon and put it in a refrigerator or a freezer. I mean, there had to be a restaurant somewhere in downtown Baghdad with a walk-in freezer. But as I got older, I realized that that wasn't the main mistake. I realized that the dragon hunter didn't ask Queen Khaleesi for permission to bring the dragon anywhere else, and when it awoke to find a dragon hunter named, not named Beowulf, it was clearly going to win. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing how much of a Game of Thrones fan uh, Rumi was so many years ago. <laughs> but in all seriousness, though, uh, this poem is written deeply immersed in mystical Islamic psychology. Uh, Rumi was a mystic Muslim, a, a Sufi. In Islamic understandings of the self, uh, there are four separate yet equally important parts. The first part is known as al-ruh. Al-ruh is the breath of God that animates each body the spirit, so to say. Another is al-aql. This is our knowledge-based intellect. This is the part of us that allows us to reason and do arithmetic and logic. Another part is al-nafs. This is our animal instincts, the, our subconscious urges. And lastly, we have al-kalb which is our spiritual intellect. Now, the last two are the most important for our story today, so I want to explain them a little bit more. So Al-Kalb is our spiritual intellect, and the Sufis talked a lot about it, but they didn't talk about it a lot straight out. They used metaphor. And the metaphor that I love the most when talking about this is that of a mirror. A lot of Sufis said that you are a mirror that reflects God's light into the world. It wants to bring you into communion with the ultimate, with mystery itself. There's a problem, though. The problem is that your mirror doesn't reflect things as well as it could. Uh, mystic Al-Ghazal wrote, Dear friend, your heart is a polished mirror. You must wipe it clean of the veil of dust that has gathered upon it, because it is destined to reflect light of divine secrets. The imagery is incredible, at least I think so. But that leads to the inevitable question, why is our mirror covered with this dust? What has made it so that I can't simply reflect 
those divine secrets already? And part to that answer is that fourth part of yourself, al-nafs. So al-nafs is our animal instincts, our base subconscious reactions to life. These are the parts of us that we often call our gut. These are the parts of us that oftentimes we don't even realize that we have. Have you ever been talking to someone and they stop mid-sentence and they say, why are you making that face? Well, that was Al-Nafs at work. Your subconscious formed that face without you even knowing. Note that I'm not talking about the id that Freud thought of, nor am I talking about original sin that many Christians talk about. This part of us has both good things and bad things. Your animal instincts are your drive to stay alive. Your animal instincts are the drive for passions like love. They're the things that bring you so much excitement. At the same time, this is the same place where we have things like envy and lust and hatred. So this animal instinct that we have can be explained so well through modern evolutionary psychology. Why is it that we crave food? Well, because natural selection taught us that if we don't crave food, we won't eat food. And if we don't eat food, then we'll die. Why is it that we crave love? Well, for so many reasons, but among them are procreation, safety, self-assurance. Things like food and love are good things that this part of us brings. They serve us by helping to find joy, sustenance, and fulfillment in our lives. But what happens if your neighbor has better food than you? What happens if because that neighbor has better food, your neighbor is able to swoon the person you were in love with? Well, evolutionary psychology says that back in tribal societies, well, this was bad for us. If our two main goals were to survive and pass our genes along, this situation is not going to be good for us. So this would cause us to be jealous. It may even bring us rage. There were a number of choices we could make at this point. Uh, we could choose to work hard to get more food so that we could compete with that other person. Or we could just choose to simply take that person out, claim their food, and take over their spot in society. Maybe these feelings served us well thousands of years ago, but I don't think these things serve us well anymore at this extent. Society, I think, has changed too quickly, and these hangovers from evolution that are so ingrained into us can cause us pain, and they can cause us suffering. Evolutionary psychologist Robert Wright, in his book, Why Buddhism is True, unpacks this further. Wright's word of choice here is essence. Using psychology in Buddhism, he explains that we are constantly ascribing an essence to things that we encounter in the world. These essences help us decide if these things are good 
or bad. And these essences come with stories of sorts. These stories end in judgments, and these judgments cause feelings, and these feelings bring forth thoughts for you to act on. An example would look something like this. So I really, really like gelato. I don't know if you all like gelato, but I love gelato. And for those of you who don't know what gelato is, uh, think of ice cream, uh, but make it thicker, uh, make it richer, uh, make it creamier, and, and probably make it worse for your health. <laughs> and, and, and now imagine tasting chocolate ice cream that is thicker, richer, creamier, and, and still probably worse for your health. Imagine how amazing that is. To be honest, I have a gelato place down the street from my house that I may or may not stop at periodically. So what I have just described for you is the story I have behind my experience of gelato. I think you can hear what I think of it. I, it's purely scrumptious. What this also means is if you took some chocolate ice cream, put it in a bowl, told me it was gelato, and I started eating it, I'd probably have that same reaction. Now there is a chance I'd find out, and I'd be very mad at you for a very long time, <laughs> but I'd probably still love it just the same. And what's interesting is that Robert Wright, in this book of his, talks about these professional wine tasters. And they were given these two bottles, expensive labels and cheap labels. And they were told to grade the wine, and they did. And they rated the expensive labels as being better. What they didn't know was that it was the same wine in both bottles. They saw the expensive label, they had a story, they ascribed the essence, and they encountered what they thought they would encounter. Now, I thought I'd get mad over gelato, but I mean, I can only imagine how mad those people were. So we ascribe essences like this to everything, not just food. We even ascribe essences like this to things like jobs. When we were children, oftentimes some of us were asked what we wanted to be when we grew up. What we're doing when we're asking that is looking at the child and saying, to imagine the essence of an astronaut or the essence of a teacher, and then to imagine if it's something they would like, to imagine if this is something that they crave. And sometimes kids can be very funny with the stories they have behind their reasons. I once knew a 12-year-old when I was a kid uh, who said he wanted to grow up to be an orthodontist. And of course, when a 12-year-old looks at an adult and says they want to be an orthodontist, usually the first question is, why? What? And this 12-year-old had a very quick answer, money. According, according to this 12-year-old, orthodontist made a lot of money, he wanted to make a lot of money, so therefore, he should be an orthodontist. He had no idea what an orthodontist actually does, but that was his story he told. Now, I don't think that this is something that only kids do. I think this is something that adults do as well. And I also don't think this is something restricted to the modern times. Rumi speaks about the same problem. 
Granted, those people didn't want to be orthodontists back in the day. They wanted to be much simpler things, you know, dragon hunters. Uh, I assume it's much less schooling than to be an orthodontist. Uh, but it was still too much schooling for the main character in Rumi's story. For some reason, which Rumi doesn't think important enough to share with us, the protagonist of the tale decides to become a dragon hunter. It's easy to imagine why this person would do this. Those animal instincts were pushing for things like glory, power, and so many other things that would come if others ascribed to him the essence of a dragon hunter. But what happens when this person follows those animal instincts without reflection? He lies about who he is. He puts innocent lives in danger. Innocent people get killed. He gets killed. By seeing an opportunity, our protagonist decided to put dust and rust on his mirror. And therefore, he was unable to reflect the light of God into the world. So how do we get this rust and dust off of our own mirrors? How can we better reflect the ultimate and the mystery? Well, polish. At least that's what Rumi would say. Now notice that he doesn't say that this is easy. It takes a lot of work. Notice in the story, he does not tell us about the sufferings of the dragon hunter before he made that choice to pretend. He doesn't tell us about the possible discomfort that the dragon hunter had with sitting with himself the envy of looking at others who had so much while he had so little. At the heart of his story, the dragon hunter felt that he was tragic. But is this the way he needed to tell his story? He prescribed an essence to himself. But what if he looked at himself differently? What if he just saw himself for who he was, without judgment, and simply sat with himself? What if he was able to recognize the feelings of greed and of envy? And what if he had had those thoughts bubble up into his head, and instead of listening to them, he grabbed his polish and wiped them off his mirror? How differently this story would have ended. So I don't know how much all of you connected with the dragon hunter in that story, but if you haven't noticed, I connect deeply with this person. I find that I prescribe essences to things that may not be real in my daily life. I put hopes in some things while I react with envy towards others. And sometimes I follow them against my better judgment. Sometimes my animal instincts win. I try to be mindful, to check my feelings, to take a moment to investigate the story behind what is happening. I don't always succeed. 
But by doing this, I feel like I am trying to live into our second principle, justice, equity, and compassion in human relationships. To do this, I need to check deeply with myself, check on the stories I tell about myself and the stories I tell about others. So here is my challenge to you and to myself. I challenge us to pay attention to our gut feelings, to listen to the thoughts that rise from them, and then to ask ourselves, what is the story behind this thought? Would this polish my mirror, or would this rust it? Would this bring God's light into the world? Perhaps we can clear our mirrors together as one community, building the common good, one polish at a time. Amen.